Part three, chapter five of the life of Florence Nightingale, volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1, by Edward Tyus Cook. The Death of Sidney Herbert, 1861. Cavour's Last Words, La Cosa Va. That is the life I should like to have lived. That is the death I should like to die. Sidney Herbert, as recorded by Florence Nightingale. The progress of the reforms sketched in the foregoing chapter was somewhat impeded, and an extension of them to a further point was altogether arrested by a cause against which neither Mr. Herbert's courageous spirit nor Miss Nightingale's resolute will could avail. The minister's health broke down under the long strain. He was stricken by disease, and with failing health his grasp of affairs was necessarily relaxed. The beginning of the end came early in December 1860. A sad change, wrote Miss Nightingale, from Hampstead, December 6, to her uncle, has come over the spirit of my not dreams but too strong realities. Mr. Herbert is said to have a fatal disease. You know I don't believe in fatal diseases, but fatal to his work I believe this will be. He came over himself to tell me and to discuss what part of the work had better be given up. I shall always respect the man for having seen him so. He was not low, but awestruck. It was settled that he should give up the House of Commons, but keep on office at least till some of the things are done which want doing it is another reason for my wishing to go to town soon as he is particularly forbidden damp and to see him here always entails a night ride to their meeting on this occasion early in december miss nightingale often referred in letters of a later date mr herbert had put before her the three alternatives between which he had to choose he might retire from public life altogether, he might retire from office, retaining his seat in the House of Commons, or he might retain his office and leave the House of Commons for the House of Lords. The first alternative, though it might seem to promise the best hope of recovery, was soon put away. It offered small temptation to a man of Herbert's buoyancy of spirit and high sense of public duty. The second alternative was that to which he at first inclined. He was essentially a politician and a House of Commons man. He had sat for twenty-eight years in that house, where his fine appearance, his personal charm, and his considerable gift of eloquence made him a commanding and popular figure. To go to the House of Lords was, as he thought and said, to be shelved. Miss Nightingale urged him with all her formidable powers of persuasion to make the sacrifice for the sake of their unfinished work, and so it was agreed, at the cost of many a pang on his part, as he confessed, but to the relief of his wife. A thousand thanks, she wrote to Miss Nightingale, for all you have said and done, and God bless you for all your love and sympathy. Mr. Herbert retained office, resigned his seat in the Commons, 
and was created Lord Herbert of Lee. Miss Nightingale did not fully realize how ill Lord Herbert was. She did not remember that a life entirely laid out, as hers was, for work and freed from all distraction, involves less strain than one in which social ties, general conversation, family responsibilities, and journeyings to and fro fill up the time between hours of work and she was passionately set upon the accomplishment of the work in which they were engaged. She longed to see it crowned and made secure. Every step already taken by Mr. Herbert in the war office had been an administrative improvement. The great principle involved in his reforms was, she wrote, to simplify procedure, to abolish divided responsibility, to define clearly the duties of each head of a department and of each class of office, to hold heads responsible for their respective departments with direct communication with the Secretary of State. The cause of army reform would not be completed. The permanence of the improvements already made would not be secured unless every department of the war office was similarly reorganized under a general and coherent scheme so miss nightingale urged her friend forward to one fight more the best and the last the war office she had written to him november eighteenth eighteen fifty nine is a very slow office an enormously expensive office and one in which the minister's intentions can be entirely negatived by all his sub-departments and those of each of the sub-departments by every other mr herbert had agreed a departmental committee had been appointed to report upon reorganization and lord de grey who was under-secretary until mr herbert went to the lords had drafted a scheme this was the scheme which in substance miss nightingale now urged lord herbert to carry through but the horse guards was on the alert to mark the least infringement of its privileges and sir benjamin hawes the permanent under-secretary at the war office was copious with objections there are amongst miss nightingale's papers many drafts in which she and dr sutherland reorganized the war office from top to bottom sir benjamin might have smiled rather grimly and then set himself with the greater determination to keep things as they were had he seen how near the bottom was the place into which miss nightingale proposed to reorganize him she was quite frank about it the scheme will probably result in hawes's resignation she wrote that is another of its advantages to reorganize the war office on paper is an occupation which during fifty following years was to beguile the leisure of amateurs and to fill with disappointed hopes the laborious days of many a minister to carry out any such scheme into practice is a task which only a minister in full fighting force could hope to accomplish it was beyond the power of a dying man miss nightingale had her fears from the first our scheme of reorganization she wrote to sir john mcneill january seventeenth eighteen sixty one is at last launched at the war office but i feel that hawes may make it fail there is no strong hand over him 
Lord Herbert struggled on manfully with his many tasks, including, it should be remembered, constant dispute with Mr. Gladstone over the army estimates, but his strength grew constantly less. At last he had to confess that, on the matter which Miss Nightingale had urged him to carry through, he was beaten. Lord Herbert to Miss Nightingale, June 7, 1861. As to the organization, I am at my wit's end. The real truth is that I do not understand it. I have not the bump of system in me. I believe more in good men than in good systems. De Grey understands it much better. He then describes certain minor reforms in personnel, including a definite sphere of responsibility for Captain Galton. This I should like to do before I go. And now comes the question, when is that to be, and what had I best do, and what leave to be done by others? I feel that I am not now doing justice to the war office or myself. On days when the morning is spent on a sofa drinking gulps of brandy till I am fit to crawl down to the office, I am not very energetic when I get there. I have still two or three matters which I should like to settle and finish, but I am by no means clear that the organization of the office is one of them. Further official details. I cannot end even this long letter without a word on a subject of which my mind is full and yours will be too. Cavour. What a life! What a life! And what a death! I know of no fifty lives which could be put in competition with his. It casts a shade over all Europe. While he lived, one felt so confident for Italy that he could hold his own against Austria, against the wild Italians, against the Pope, and above all against El Napoleon. But what a glorious career, and what a work done in one life. I don't know where to look for anything to compare with it. Cavour had died the day before, and his last recorded words were of his cause, La Cosa Va. The pathos with which the events of the next few weeks were to invest this letter from Sidney Herbert made a deep impression upon Miss Nightingale. Among some penciled jottings of hers, written thirty or forty years after, she recalled phrases in the letter and in conversations of the same date. But at the immediate moment, Lord Herbert's confession of failure filled her with despairing vexation. Sir John McNeil, to whom she poured out her soul, took the truer view of the case. It was sad, he admitted, June 18, that Lord Herbert should have been beaten on his own chosen ground by Ben Hawes. But, he added, the truth, I suspect, is that he has been beaten by disease and not by Ben. What strikes me in this great defeat, she replied, June 21, more painfully even than the loss to the army, is the triumph of the bureaucracy over the leaders, the political aristocracy who at least advocate higher principles. A Sidney Herbert beaten by a Ben Hawes is a greater humiliation, really, as a matter of principle, than the disaster of Scutari. Disease held Lord Herbert in its grasp, but with indomitable spirit he worked on at matters other than reorganization in which he and Miss Nightingale were specially interested. 
One of these matters was the establishment of a general military hospital at Woolwich. Among the few practical things, wrote Miss Nightingale to Sir John McNeill, June 21, which I hope to succeed in saving from the general wreck of the war office, is the organization of one general hospital on your plan. Colonel Wilbraham has consented to be governor. Last week we made a list of the staff, and the names were approved by Lord Herbert. There has been an immense uproar, perhaps no more than you anticipated, from the Army Medical Department and the Horse Guards. Lord Herbert was to send her the draft of the Governor's Commission, and she asked Sir John McNeill's assistance in revising it. Then she was requested to name a superintendent of nurses. Her choice fell upon one of her Crimean colleagues, Mrs. Shaw Stewart, an admirable, though a somewhat difficult lady, who had now quarrelled with Miss Nightingale, but whose efficiency marked her out for the post. Two other of Lord Herbert's last official acts referred also to the health of the British soldier, and each was suggested by Miss Nightingale. One was the appointment of the Barracks Works Committee, June 6, already mentioned. The other, the appointment of Captain Galton and Dr. Sutherland as commissioners, with Mr. J. J. Frederick as secretary, to improve the barracks and hospitals on the Mediterranean station. By the end of June, Lord Herbert's health had become worse, and he was ordered abroad to Spa. On July 9, he called at the Burlington Hotel to say goodbye to Miss Nightingale. They never met again. A week later, he wrote to her from Spa. I enclose a letter from Mrs. Shaw Stewart to cut matters short and start the thing. I have begged her to select the nurses on their own terms. I mean as to qualifications, as the regulations define salary, etc. So I hope we shall at any rate start the thing now. I have written an undated letter of resignation to Palmerston to be used whenever convenient to him. I have not written it without a pang, but I believe it to be the right and best course. I believe Lewis, with de Grey for undersecretary, is to be my successor. I can fancy no fish more out of water than Lewis amidst Armstrong guns and general officers, but he is a gentleman, an honest man, and de Grey will be invaluable for the office and for many of the especial interests to which I specially looked. I have a letter from Codrington proposing another site for the new branch institute. I have sent it to Galton. I wish I had any confidence that you are as much better as I am. Lord Herbert's buoyancy of spirit remained to him when physical strength was quickly ebbing. He became worse and on July 25 left Spa for home. He died at Wilton on August 2. To the last, wrote his sister to Miss Nightingale, he had the same charm, that dear winning smile, that almost playful, pretty way of saying everything, but among his last articulate words were these, Poor Florence, poor Florence, our joint work unfinished. Part 2 The death of Sidney Herbert was a heavy blow to Miss Nightingale, the heaviest, perhaps, which she ever had to suffer. 
it meant not only the loss of an old friend and companion in whose society she had constantly lived and moved for five years it meant also the interruption of their joint work which was more to her than life itself she felt in the severance of their alliance the true bitterness of death miss nightingale to her father hampstead august twenty one eighteen sixty one dear papa indeed your sympathy is very dear to me so few people know in the least what i have lost in my dear master indeed i know no one but myself who had it to lose for no two people pursue together the same object as i did with him and when they lose their companion by death they have in fact lost no companionship now he takes my life with him my work the object of my life the means to do it all in one depart with him grief fills the room up of my absent master i cannot say it walks up and down with me for i don't walk up and down but it eats and sleeps and wakes with me yet i can truly say that i see it is better that god should not work a miracle to save sidney herbert although his death involves the misfortune moral and physical of five hundred thousand men and although it would have been but to set aside a few trifling physical laws to save him the righteous perisheth and no man layeth it to heart the scripture goes on to say none considering that he is taken away from the evil to come i say none considering that he is taken away from the good he might have done now not one man remains that i can call a man of all those whom i began work with five years ago and i alone of all men most deject and wretched survive them all i am sure i meant to have died ever dear papa your loving child f her grief was accompanied and intensified by some remorse miss nightingale to harriet martineau hampstead september twenty fourth eighteen sixty one and i too was hard upon him i told him that cavour's death was a blow to european liberty but that a greater blow was that sidney herbert should be beaten on his own ground by a bureaucracy i told him that no man in my day had thrown away so noble a game with all the winning cards in his hands and his angelic temper with me at the same time that he felt what i said was true i shall never forget i wish people to know that what was done was done by a man struggling with death to know that he thought so much more of what he had not done than of what he had done to know that all his latter suffering years were filled not by a selfish desire for his own salvation far less for his own ambition he hated office his was the purest ambition i have ever known but by the struggle of exertion for our benefit happily for her peace of mind there came to her an almost immediate call to be up and doing in the service of her dear master as in her letters of this time she constantly named sidney herbert the newspapers had at first been somewhat grudging in their obituary notices of him he had been thought of in connection more with the defects of the war office during the early months of the crimean war than with his services as a reformer his family and his friends were pained and on their behalf mr gladstone applied to miss nightingale she did not feel well enough to see him and on august sixth he wrote explaining the case 
taking the liberty of intruding upon her for aid and counsel and asking the assistance of her superior knowledge and judgment in a matter which so much interests our feelings miss nightingale instantly set to work and wrote a memorandum on sidney herbert's work as an army reformer she wrote quickly but with her usual care in giving chapter and verse for every statement the memorandum was anonymous and was marked private and confidential but she had it printed and circulated it among lord herbert's friends and various publicists among those who saw it was abraham hayward who when a memorial to lord herbert was being mooted a few weeks later strongly urged that she should be asked to publish the paper no one he wrote could or would misconstrue her motives nothing has been more remarkable in her beneficent and self-sacrificing career than its unobtrusiveness it has only become famous because its results were too great and good to be shrouded in silence and retirement admirably as she writes she is obviously never thinking about her style which for that very reason is most impressive and i feel quite sure that the paper in question would suggest no thought or feeling beyond conviction and sympathy the memorandum in so far as it relates to what sidney herbert did has been described and quoted above but at the end of it miss nightingale was careful to touch upon what he had meant to do and what remained for others to do he died before his work was done the work on which his heart was set was the preservation of the health physical and moral of the british soldiers this is the work of which ought to bear fruit in all future time and which his death has committed to the guardianship of his country having finished her memorandum miss nightingale sent it to mr gladstone she knew how warm had been the friendship between him and sidney herbert she thought that in the friend who remained the saying might perchance come true una awulso non de ficit alter at any rate it was her duty to throw out the hint so she underlined as it were the closing words of her paper by offering to talk with mr gladstone about the unfinished work which as she knew was nearest to sidney herbert's heart to this overture mr gladstone replied in a letter giving account of his friend's funeral w e gladstone to florence nightingale eleven carlton house terrace august tenth eighteen sixty one the funeral was very sad but very soothing simplicity itself in point of form it was most remarkable from the number of people gathered together and especially from their demeanour many men were weeping not one unconcerned face among several thousands could be seen but it all brings home more and more the immense void that he has left for all who loved that is for all who knew him i read last night with profound interest your important paper i see at once that the matter is too high for me to handle like you i know that too much would distress him too little would not i am in truth ignorant of military administration and my impressions are distant and vague it is your knowledge and authority more than that of any living creature that can do him justice at the proper time whenever that may be do him justice as he would like it without exaggeration without defrauding others i shall return the paper to you 
but of it i venture to keep a copy with respect to your making known to me the three subjects i will beg you to exercise your own discretion after simply saying this much my duty is to watch and control on the part of the treasury rather than to promote officially departmental reforms to him i could personally suggest i am not sure that i should be justified in taking the same liberty with sir g lewis especially new to his work on the other hand my desire to promote herbert's wishes as his wishes was not stronger than my confidence in his judgment as an administrator if i now seem reluctant to touch that subject it is for fear i should spoil it in the conduct of a department he seemed to me very nearly if not quite the first of his generation i remain dear miss nightingale very sincerely yours w e gladstone on the afternoon of november twenty eighth in willis's rooms in the same place where in the same month six years before mr herbert had spoken in support of a memorial to miss nightingale's honour a public meeting was held to promote a memorial to him i think you would have been satisfied wrote mr gladstone to her on the same evening even if a fastidious judge with the tone and feeling of the meeting to-day i mean as regards herbert as respects yourself you might have cared little but could not have been otherwise than pleased i made no allusion to you in connection with the paper you kindly sent me although i made some use of the materials i acted thus after conference with count streslachi and with his approval i thought that if i mentioned you along with that paper i should seem guilty of the assumption to constitute myself your organ miss nightingale's paper summarizing lord herbert's services to the health and comfort of the british army formed indeed the staple of more than one of the speeches and the long alliance between them in that cause which has been the subject of preceding chapters in this memoir was frequently referred to at the meeting general sir john burgoyne said breezily that lord herbert's hobby was to promote the health and comfort of the soldier and his pet was miss nightingale who had for many years devoted herself to the same pursuit mr gladstone mentioned as lord herbert's fellow-labourer the name of miss nightingale a name that had become a talisman to all her fellow-countrymen and lord palmerston the prime minister in associating the commander-in-chief with the late minister for war added that they did not labour alone they were not the only two there was a third engaged in those honourable exertions and miss nightingale though a volunteer in the service acted with all the zeal of a volunteer and was greatly assistant as i am sure your royal highness will bear witness to the labours of your royal highness and lord herbert section three the alliance which was dissolved by lord herbert's death is probably unique in the history of politics and of friendship as for his friendship in mine said miss nightingale i doubt whether the same could ever occur again for five years the politician in the public eye and this woman behind the scenes were in active cooperation often seeing each other daily at all times in uninterrupted communication there have been other instances in which the same thing has happened but happened with many differences there have been statesmen who have made confidants of their wives and who have found in them wise counsellors and helpful supporters 
Sidney Herbert himself received much help in his public work from his wife, to whom he was devotedly attached. In some pencil jottings about her friends, Miss Nightingale records a beautiful trait. Sidney Herbert made it a rule, she says, to mark each anniversary of his wedding day by beginning some new work of kindness towards others. Yet there was room in the ordering of his life during the five years following the Crimean War for taking constant counsel from another woman, so constant as perhaps in the days of his illness and overwork to cause his wife some anxiety. Yet Miss Nightingale was as dear to the wife as she was helpful to the husband, and affectionate friendship between her and Mrs. Herbert was not impaired. There have been many statesmen, again, and many other eminent men, who have found inspiration or support, no less than solace or pleasure, in the friendship of women. But Sidney Herbert's attraction to Miss Nightingale and hers to him were on a plane by themselves. She, indeed, was susceptible, as was every man and every woman who knew him, to Sidney Herbert's singular charm and courtesy. She admired the brilliance of his conversation, she felt pleasure in his presence, and he, with his quick perception, must have enjoyed the ready humor which played around Miss Nightingale's wisdom. But they were also comrades, or colleagues, even as men are. A woman once told me, Miss Nightingale said to an old friend, that my character would be more sympathized with by men than by women. In one sense, I don't choose to have that said. Sidney Herbert and I were together exactly like two men, exactly like him and Gladstone. The secret of this rare friendship between Sidney Herbert and Miss Nightingale is to be found first in the fact that the character and gifts of the one were precisely complementary to those of the other. Though of a sanguine temperament, Sidney Herbert had the politician's caution. Miss Nightingale, though of an eminently practical genius, was eager and full of impelling force. She supplied inspiration which he had the means of translating into political action. Sidney Herbert had the political mind, Miss Nightingale the administrative. Not indeed that he was deficient in some of the administrative gifts, or she in political instinct, but what was peculiarly characteristic of her was the combination of a firm grasp of general principles with a complete command of detail, and in the particular work in which they were engaged, her experience supplied what he lacked. I supplied the detail, she said herself, the knowledge of the actual working of an army in which official men are so deficient. He supplied the political weight. Each was thus indispensable to the other and they were united by perfect sympathy in the service of high ideals. He, wrote Miss Nightingale of Sidney Herbert, was every possession which God could bestow to make him idly enjoy life, yet ran like a racehorse his noble course till he fell, and up to the very day, fortnight, of his death, struggled on doing good, not for the love of power or place, he did not care for it, but for the love of mankind and of God. He was, in the best sense, she wrote elsewhere, a saver of men. In that honorable record, Miss Nightingale deserves an equal place with her friend. End 
of the death of Sidney Herbert, 1861.